You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 19, Mary Silvani. It was 1982. On Saturday, July 17th, a father and son were hiking a trail up Mount Rose in the Sheep's Flat area of Nevada. They were nearing the summit, walking in the serene meadow several hundred yards off the highway that ran up the Lake Tahoe side of the mountain, above Incline Village. Mount Rose is a pretty remote area, but is popular among hikers in northern Nevada. The duo paused their ascent of Mount Rose to take a break and play in the few inches of snow that still covered the ground at this elevation, even though it was midsummer. Startled, the pair saw what appeared to be a woman sleeping on the ground next to a fallen log at the tree line that abutted the meadow and trail. As they stood there, another pair of hikers walked up, a couple. The four hikers collectively discovered that the woman, who was face down and appeared to have fallen face first off the log, was not sleeping. On close observation, they saw that she was clearly dead, her face plastered with pine needles. Oddly, a pair of men's underwear covered the back of her head, and that item of clothing obscured a gunshot wound visible to the back of the victim's skull. It being the time before cell phones, the hikers had to find the nearest phone to call police. Deputies from the Washoe County Sheriff's Office responded, and a homicide investigation was begun by WSCO detectives Jim Lopey and Donald Means. This was because no gun was found, and it was evident that the victim had not shot herself. Descriptions of the killing in early newspaper reports state that it was execution style. The body was not visible from the roadway a few hundred yards away, but it was not obscured either, and was discarded in plain view of any hikers who happened along. Of course, investigators were anxious to find the identity of the killer who had shot and killed the young woman, but they had something they had to determine first, who she was. On Monday, July 19th, Washoe County Sheriff's Office Commander Bill Matthews told the Reno Gazette Journal that investigators needed the public's help because, he said, quote, we have no idea who she is. The victim had been found fully clothed, wearing a one-piece royal blue bathing suit that was pulled down to her waist under her shirt, Lee Ryder jeans, a baby blue short-sleeved Bunties t-shirt size medium, which had been cut to make it shorter and size 6.5 pale yellow canvas sneakers with yellow rubber toes lay next to her body. She appeared to have been in the process of putting them on. There was no identification on her. She had been found without a purse or any other identifying material or jewelry. Of course, an autopsy was performed to try to verify that the cause of death was the gunshot wound. 
It was, but once the body was cleaned off and more closely examined, the medical examiner noted that there were actually two gunshot wounds, one to the back of her head and one behind her right ear. She would have died instantly. Another purpose of the autopsy was to try to figure out who the victim was. There were no identifying marks on her body that provided an answer, but there were some clues. The woman was in her mid-twenties to mid-thirties, five foot five, 112 pounds, with hazel eyes and brown hair that was worn in a bun. She had a four to five inch scar on her abdomen that was from a C-section and stretch marks on her stomach and had carried at least one pregnancy to term. She had a bruise under one of her big toenails and bruising around her eye, which raised questions about whether she had been hit by someone or something. The victim also had a large vaccination scar on her left shoulder. One additional thing was noted. She had gold dental work, which was deemed to be of good quality. This told investigators that the woman had come from a family of at least moderate means. The medical examiner was able to determine that the victim's last meal was a salad, which she had consumed two to four hours before her death. The time of death was estimated to be 12 to 18 hours earlier, as liver mortis was still blanching when the victim was found. This means that the coloration of the body is still in the process of changing after death. She also had freshly hatched fly larvae on her body. This told investigators that the victim was almost certainly killed fairly recently. She was found on Saturday afternoon at 1.30, so her time of death was believed to be sometime Friday night or early Saturday morning. And seminal fluid found in the victim's mouth was collected at the autopsy and preserved. This led investigators to believe that she had been sexually assaulted almost immediately prior to her death. Who was this young mother, what was she doing on Sheep's Flat, and who had killed her? Law enforcement officials had an uphill battle in the murder investigation concerning the shooting victim found on Mount Rose, because, as we know, the first place investigators usually start is with victimology. Detectives look into their victim's background, relationships, and so on, because in the vast majority of cases, this leads them to their killer. But in this case, since they had no idea who their victim was, the victimology was unknown. Before they could hunt down a shooter, they had to figure out who the victim was. Search and rescue was brought in to aid in the crime scene investigation. Nothing at the scene provided any solid clues, just some facts that allowed the detectives to make inferences. Since the deceased woman was wearing a bathing suit, they believed she had possibly been at Lake Tahoe that day. There were two sets of footprints in the snow leading from the road to the place where the victim was found, and only one set leading away. Based on the footprints and the position that the victim was in when she was found, they formed the theory that she had walked to the spot where she was killed, had stopped and taken off her shoes, and had been sitting on the fallen log, bending over to tie or adjust her shoes when the killer had shot her in the back of the head. She fell forward onto her face when she was shot. Either the woman had been willingly in the company of her killer and had been surprised and shot when she paused at the log, or she had been a captive and had been led to that spot. Investigators leaned strongly toward her knowing her killer, walking with him through Sheep's Flat and being blindsided by the shot to the head. She had not seen it coming. They formed a profile of sorts of the person who had killed her, a male, someone who was prone to violence, probably had an arrest record, and someone who was a sexual predator. They believed that when he and Jane Doe left the vehicle and walked into Sheep's Flat, he had already planned to rape and murder the victim. 
Anxious for information about who the victim was, investigators hired a local artist to create a sketch of her face. They sent this sketch to the local papers and passed out flyers with her picture to see if her likeness generated any tips. But this didn't provide any leads. They sent the sketch and the details of the crime to more than 300 law enforcement agencies in the western part of the United States, as well as major ones in the east. Washoe County Sheriff's officials contacted the casinos in the region and circulated the sketch of the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe as the victim came to be known. There was no indication that she was affiliated with the casino, but it was a smart move because, obviously, the gambling facilities are a big draw in the area, and perhaps someone would recognize her as either a staff member or a tourist. But no one did. They also checked all work permits in the area and checked hotels and motels to see if maybe she had stayed in or worked at one of those. After several days, Sheriff Sergeant Greg Barnes said, quote, We have no idea in the world who Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was. By July 28th, more than a week into the investigation, Washoe County Sheriff's Office Chief Criminal Deputy Mills Lane said dryly, We have no good leads. We just have nothing. Investigators say that in a lot of cases, but here, it was really true. Not only did they not have the name of their killer, they didn't have the name of the victim either. They had even taken Sheep's Flat Jane Doe's fingerprints and dental records and compared them with records belonging to 40 to 50 missing women of similar descriptions across the country to no avail. The FBI had no match for her prints either. Investigators came to the conclusion that their Jane Doe was likely not from the Reno area since no one had come forward with any information about who she was. There were leads that detectives followed up. Captain Bill Matthews said between 30 and 35 leads had been run down, but they had all come to nothing. Secret Witness, an organization that facilitated anonymous tips in unsolved cases that was a precursor to the modern-day Crime Stoppers, published an ad in the Reno Gazette Journal on September 8th with a sketch of Jane Doe and a $500 reward for identification not of her killer, but of her. Meanwhile, having gathered all the information they could from the autopsy, taken photos of the body, and documented the medical examiner's observations— Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was buried without fanfare at Our Mother of Sorrow Cemetery, not a very eternally uplifting name, near Reno on September 20th. The county coroner, Vern McCarty, said protocols required that the county wait 10 days before having an unidentified body buried. But he had taken it on himself to wait a month in hopes that Jane Doe would be claimed. And state law required that unidentified bodies be buried instead of undergoing a much cheaper cremation. The $800 price tag for Sheep's Flat Jane Doe's embalming, casket, transport, plot, and burial was picked up by the Washoe County Welfare Department. The name on her death certificate was simply Jane Doe, and her grave was unmarked. When news of this unceremonious and secular burial reached the public, some members of a local church, the Universal Life Church of God, and members of a local chapter of a support group for family members of murder victims, held a graveside service for Sheep's Flat Jane Doe. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, Ben Sutton, Bishop of the Universal Life Church of God in Reno, was upset by the unceremonious burial of the woman with no name. So he organized a memorial service for worshippers to pay their respects. The bishop told the paper that he had received a telephone threat the night before. The voice on the phone said, Are you giving the service for Jane Doe tomorrow? I said, Yes. I was then told, If you go through with it, you're dead. Nothing came of this, but it is very bizarre. 
Was the killer a local with access to information about the memorial service, and why would he care about a small ceremony? The investigation plodded on. Sheriff's office representatives would not comment on the caliber of the weapon used to kill Sheep's Flat Jane Doe, whether a bullet and or a casing had been found, or whether they had any theories. But it was pretty clear they didn't. This was definitely not for lack of trying. In fact, Washoe County investigators went to great lengths to determine the unknown woman's identity. They had a forensic dentist review the coroner's report and photos of the dental work in the victim's mouth. The assessment was that the victim had neglected her teeth in recent years, and they were not in tip-top shape. She had visible gum recession disease and plaque buildup. But earlier in life, she had costly procedures done by more than one dentist. These included a unique porcelain three-tooth gold bridge on the upper left side of her mouth, as well as at least 10 other permanent and temporary fillings and crowns. According to reports, one of Jane Doe's lower teeth was noticeably rotated, and her upper front teeth were not symmetrical in appearance because she was congenitally missing her lateral incisors, and some of her teeth had moved in to fill the gaps. Captain Matthews told the Reno Gazette Journal that the expert, quote, gave some indication her dental work may have been done outside this country. Specifically, the methods used appeared to have been done by someone either in Europe or trained in dentistry in Europe. And the smallpox vaccination scar on Jane Doe's arm appeared similar to those seen in Germany. So investigators sent the sketch of Jane Doe and the information gathered in her autopsy to authorities at the U.S. State Department, who circulated it throughout Europe and Canada to compare to missing persons cases there. Scotland Yard and Interpol received the reports as well. It was a stretch, and it didn't pay off, but it showed the investigators' commitment to solving the mystery of who Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was. They even consulted a psychic, brought in four months after Jane Doe was found. This was because a well-known New Jersey-based psychic had been lauded in publications like People magazine for assisting in 8,000 police investigations. A reporter from the Reno Gazette Journal contacted her to see if she had any visions about the Sheephead Jane Doe case. She said she did, and that the victim had been killed because she had seen a secret document and threatened to reveal its contents. Captain Matthews expressed his skepticism, but said that his department would look into the psychic statements, which were incredibly specific— about a rope that was used, the killer's injured ankles, and so on, because the investigators were so frustrated. I probably don't have to tell you that these quote-unquote leads went nowhere. And the frustration of the investigators would grow and grow over the next months, years, and decades. Remember how we talked about the typical investigation and how it focuses on victimology to lead to the killer? Washoe County Sheriff's Deputy Captain Dan Coppa told the Reno Gazette Journal that this case was so infuriating because he felt that, quote, if we knew who she was, we'd be able to find a suspect very simply through a background investigation. But of course, as we've seen in quite a few of these cases, that is not always true. But detectives in the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe case did not know that. And in this case, they felt strongly that Sheep's Flat Jane Doe had willingly been in the company of her killer that day, because if she had been with a group of friends, someone would have reported her missing. Unless, of course, she was traveling alone and just happened upon the wrong person. One detective who worked the case went on to become a Washoe County Sheriff's deputy. In 1995, Bill Flippo recalled that at the time Jane Doe was found, they were all certain the clearly recent murder would be solved quickly. Now, 13 years later, he wryly ate his words. He told the Reno Gazette Journal, quote, The only thing we can say with certainty is she's dead. 
Investigators continued to work the case, cross-checking Jane Doe's information against hundreds of missing persons report over the years. They checked all cases of murder and sexual assault from the time period in the Nevada area looking for similarities in M.O. or type of victim. They looked at convicted felons who had served time for violent crimes and who were out of prison at the time of the murder. All was for naught. They never closed the case, but inevitably, it stagnated. In 2000, 18 years after the murder, Detective Larry Canfield, a 22-year veteran investigator in the WSCO, was appointed to take over several cold cases that were languishing unsolved. Canfield was optimistic about one of them, the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe case. This was because a complete DNA profile of the suspect had been developed from the seminal fluid found in the victim in the sexual assault kit that had been done at her autopsy. Remember, the DNA sample found in Jane Doe's mouth was still relatively fresh, so investigators were sure that the identity of the person who assaulted her and the person who killed her were the same. The profile had been run through a state database of offender DNA, as well as the relatively new national CODA system with no luck. But still, Canfield felt that they had found a major piece of the puzzle of the identity of the killer. He remarked to the Reno Gazette Journal that this DNA evidence could be used to convict the murderer, even if they never determined the victim's identity. He submitted additional pieces of evidence from the case to the crime lab for analysis in 2001. But the cold case detective's optimism was unfounded. It would be another 15 years before there was any movement on the case. By 2015, Sheep's Flat Jane Doe had been compared to 227 other Jane Doe's throughout the U.S. who had similar descriptions and physical characteristics. None of them was a match. That year, the Washoe County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit adopted a new strategy. They issued a press release on July 21, 2015, about the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe case. The release stated that investigators were operating under a new theory and asked for the public's help. The new theory, presented by Detective Dave Jenkins, was that the victim was likely from or had been living in the western part of the United States. This deduction about where she was from came from the clothing Jane Doe wore. The baby blue shirt she was sporting was sold at retail outlets in California, Oregon, and Washington State. The other part of the theory was that she had been estranged from her family. This is why she was never reported missing. Quoted on ABC 8, Detective Jenkins said, quote, Her teeth were in disrepair at the time she was murdered and appeared to have been in decline for a couple of years. So we're looking at someone perhaps who may have had considerable family resources at one time, but this is someone who may have become voluntarily estranged from her family and friends and might have been believed to have left town. The release, which contained an artist's color rendering of the victim, asked for anyone who might know of a young woman from the West Coast who left her family in the late 1970s or early 1980s to call in a tip. Hopes were that social media would result in increased exposure to this case, and someone would at long last identify Sheep's Flat Jane Doe. It didn't happen. Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was entered into NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, which is basically a repository for information regarding missing, unidentified, and unclaimed people throughout the country. It has existed since 2007. In June of 2018, NamUs had 14,000 missing persons cases and 12,000 unidentified persons cases in its database. The goal of the organization is to match up missing persons reports with information about Jane and John Doe's entered by coroners, medical examiners, and law enforcement. 
Sheep's flat Jane Doe had been listed in NamUs as an unidentified homicide victim for years. NamUs case UP8427, with no results. In 2017, a new nonprofit organization was founded to facilitate the use of forensic genealogy to help identify the thousands of Jane and John Doe's throughout the United States. This was the brainchild of Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, who, as we know, was the creator of the forensic genealogy tool and her partner, Dr. Margaret Press. The DNA Doe Project, consisting entirely of volunteers, began working with law enforcement agencies and coroners across the country to help give names to victims of homicide, suicide, or accidental death who were unidentified by using their DNA to locate relatives. And behind the scenes, there started to be some movement in the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe case. It started when, in February of 2018, criminalists from the Washoe County Sheriff's Forensic Science Division attended the annual meeting of the American Academy of Forensic Science in Seattle. At this conference, Dr. Fitzpatrick spoke about the ability of her company, Identifinders International, and of the DNA Doe Project, to determine the identities of people based on DNA. This was before the announcement that the Golden State Killer case had been solved through forensic genealogy. It was still a very new, if not totally foreign, concept in law enforcement. But Washoe County detectives were intrigued, and they felt that perhaps identifinders could help them identify Sheep's Flat Jane Doe's killer. In April of 2018, right before GSK broke, they submitted the DNA profile from the semen found on Sheep's Flat Jane Doe to identifinders. At the same time, they submitted the DNA from the victim, Sheep's Flat Jane Doe herself, to the DNA Doe Project to perform forensic genealogy. This was in the form of a bloody piece of fabric cut from the blue shirt Jane Doe had been wearing on the day she died. From that fabric, the lab used by the DNA Doe Project was able to isolate her DNA profile, and they were off to the races. Jane Doe's identity was discovered first. In July 2018, the DNA Doe Project, or DDP, announced that Sheep's Flat Jane Doe had been tentatively identified. DDP continued to work closely with the Washoe County Sheriff's Office to confirm her name, which was completed a month later, but her identity was not announced yet. The WCSO wanted to wait and see if they could also get results on determining the identity of Jane Doe's killer. It was nearly a year before there was an announcement. The case was solved. On May 7, 2019, Washoe County Sheriff Darren Balam held a press conference announcing the resolution of the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe case. He said that without the work of dedicated detectives and criminalists and the genealogists from the DNA Doe Project and Identifinders, this case would never have been solved. Forensic genealogy was the only thing left, and it had worked not only to give Sheep's Flat Jane Doe her name back, but to name her killer as well. In turn, Dr. Fitzpatrick, who also spoke at the press conference, credited the WSCO, which had been progressive enough to contact her way back in February of 2018, before the revolution, as she termed it, happened, meaning before using forensic genealogy was made mainstream thanks to the GSK case. Okay, let's go through Jane Doe first and look at how forensic genealogists were finally able to determine her identity after 37 years. Dr. Margaret Press, one of the co-founders of the DNA Doe Project, detailed the work that was done to identify Sheep's Flat Jane Doe. It took a total of over 2,500 hours. The DNA Doe Project team received the unknown female victim's DNA profile on May 23, 2018. They entered it into GEDmatch. 
Within hours, a very close genetic match to their Jane Doe surfaced. This person shared enough genetic markers with Jane Doe to be a child of a first cousin of Jane's. The level of shared centimorgans showed that this relative was a half-first cousin or a first cousin once removed of Sheep's Flat Jane Doe. Although normally much of the family tree tracing happens unbeknownst to those remote family members whose DNA is found to share markers with the unknown person, in this case, DNA Doe Project was in touch with this cousin of Jane Doe's, and she was very, very helpful. She assisted the genealogists in filling out her family tree and gave them access to the information she had gathered about her extended family from the private DNA testing company she had used to test her sample. As you may know, companies like 23andMe do not permit law enforcement to access their customers' information. Database searches can only be done on an open-source site like GEDmatch, which does not perform any testing, but is more of a giant repository of DNA profile information. Anyway, this cousin shared an Italian ancestor with Sheep's Flat Jane Doe. This was unusual because, as Dr. Press pointed out, many new European immigrants to the U.S. do not undertake DNA testing and upload their results. Anyway, this branch of the family led to over a dozen family tree branches forensic genealogists had to trace, looking for women who could be Jane Doe. The cousin was able to connect Dr. Press with another relative who was connected to her on 23andMe, and this woman was willing to enter her profile into GEDmatch. This was an important connection because this woman shared twice as much DNA with Jane Doe as the first female cousin. This second woman appeared to be a half-niece of Jane Doe, the child of a half-sibling of the victim's. Dr. Press started comparing the connections of all three related women in a process called triangulation to determine their common ancestor and hone in on one specific family tree branch. But she hit a snag when she learned that this second woman, the half-niece of Jane Doe, had been adopted out as a child and knew nothing about her birth parents. The genealogists worked with WCSO Detective Kathleen Bishop to review the information in the closed adoption records about this woman's birth mother and what the records reflected about her age, where she lived, her ancestry, and how many siblings she had, allowed them to determine where the birth mother fell in the family tree. They were finally able to figure out that this woman's father was the child of a man named John Silvani, and his first wife, and John Silvani was Sheep's Flat Jane Doe's father. Next, genealogists determined that Jane Doe was related to another distant relative found in the database, who was descended from the Clapper family, and from this branch was descended a Blanche Curry, the second wife of John Silvani. Their Jane Doe had to be a child of this union of Blanche and John. One of the older relatives in the family tree who was still alive told genealogists that Blanche and John had had a son and two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. After five weeks of digging into all the historic documentation they could find, they were certain that Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was one of these two daughters. They were able to confirm that a Mary Silvani had been part of the family. They were able to locate a man they believed to be her nephew, a son of her brother. This was Robert Silvani Jr. They sent him a DNA test, he sent back the sample, and it proved they were correct. Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was his aunt. Robert told investigators he never met his Aunt Mary, but recalled hearing about her. DNA tests proved that his relationship to Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was that of a blood nephew. But Robert had never heard of Elizabeth Silvani, and genealogists could not locate a birth record for an Elizabeth Silvani, only a Mary. 
It looked as though Elizabeth had never existed at all. Almost everyone in the Silvani family was at this point deceased, so how to prove that Mary Silvani was their Jane Doe and Elizabeth was a red herring? In a stroke of historical research genius, genealogists used old records from the Detroit Public Library to locate a street listing for the residence the Silvani family had occupied in the 50s and 60s. And this listing cross-referenced the names of neighbors at this address. Reaching out to the neighbor family, of which there were living members who had been children at the time, Detective Kathleen Bishop learned that these people remembered the Silvanis, and what they recalled was the family's children were two boys and one girl. There was no Elizabeth, only a Mary. The older relative who had told them about the Silvanis having two girls and a boy had been mistaken. Although the genealogists had come up with Mary's name within the first three days of starting the research, Dr. Fitzpatrick said that, quote, we wasted months searching for a sister who never existed. So after countless hours of tedious work, Sheep's Flat Jane Doe was identified as Mary Edith Silvani. She was born in Pontiac, Michigan on September 29, 1948. When she was found deceased on Mount Rose, Mary was 33 years old. Her father, John Edward Silvani, was born in France to an Italian family. Her mother, Blanche Curry, was born in Canada. Mary had two brothers. She grew up in Michigan and attended high school there. One of the few known photos of her, which I will post, is an image of Mary isolated from a group photo of some sort of club that appeared in the Detroit Mackenzie High School's class of 1966 yearbook. But it's unclear whether she graduated with her class, as the yearbook does not contain a senior photo of Mary, and the school has no record of her graduating. Mary's life was not easy. Her mother, Blanche, left the family when she was young, reportedly suffering from mental illness. In fact, Mary was born while her mother was a resident at a mental health facility. Blanche apparently was in and out of institutions for the rest of her life and did not return to or keep in contact with her family. Mary's father, John, died in 1974 when Mary was 16. At this point, Mary's aunt from the Bronx came up to Michigan and brought the three orphaned Silvani siblings back to New York to live with her. But Mary's brothers wanted to return to Michigan, so the three moved back to Detroit. Mary continued high school, but as I said, it's not clear whether she ever graduated. After that, we really don't know what happened to her. She stayed in Michigan for several years. We know that she was arrested for misdemeanor loitering in 1974 in Detroit, and at that time, her fingerprints were taken. Amazingly, these 45-year-old prints, imprinted in ink on a physical print collection card, were still in a file in the Detroit Police Department's massive off-site storage warehouse. They were used by the Washoe County Sheriff's Office in 2018 to 100% identify Sheep's Flat Jane Doe as Mary Edith Silvani. Quoted in the Detroit Free Press, Detroit Police Lieutenant Martin Stefan said of the discovery that the fingerprint card was still in existence, quote, it certainly was a pleasant surprise that we were able to locate it after all this time. It's certainly pretty rare. Some records are kept for just these kinds of reasons, but theoretically, they didn't need to be retained. It really was just a lucky situation that they managed to survive all this time. After that misdemeanor arrest when Mary was 26, we have no idea where she went next. Investigators' theory that she had moved out west, remember the shirt she was wearing was purchased out there, turned out to be correct. But no one has been able to locate where she lived, what she did for money, or anything else about her. They do know that she bore a child and gave it up for adoption in 1972. No one has been able to locate this child. 
Her brothers went their separate ways and probably did not know that Mary was missing. Her parents were both deceased when she was killed. Her mom died in 1980, and it seems likely that she had lost touch with her brothers. In an absolutely crazy turn of events, Mary's brother Charles was himself an unidentified John Doe for a short time. Charles got in some legal trouble in Detroit and did some time in prison. Then he moved to California and in 1972 participated in a murder. He and an accomplice, Thomas Joseph Azerkis, had shot and killed popular Fresno nightclub owner Ara Arax in what appeared to be a contract killing. According to Arax's son, Mark Arax, who went on to write a book about the case, Charles Silvani and Thomas Azerkis were sent to the West Coast from Detroit, where they were involved in a major drug ring. Mark's father, Ara Arax, had had information about local drug dealers and dirty cops that was dangerous to the ringleaders. They sent Azerkis and Silvani, plus a getaway driver in a stolen vehicle, to kill Arax. Silvani was the one to point the gun at Arax, who was a strong man and who tried to wrestle the gun away. Silvani was shot in the arm. Azerkis came in and fired five shots, and Arax was hit and died in the hospital. But before he passed, he was able to describe the men who attacked him as was a bartender. Composite sketches failed to flush out the criminals who escaped with the getaway driver. They sank the car in a canal, where it was later recovered. Charles Silvani was treated for his minor gunshot wound at a free clinic that did not report gunshots. And the crime went unsolved until 2001, when an informant finally came forward after 28 years and named the getaway driver. He, in turn, named Azerkis and Silvani. Some fingerprints the men left on beer glasses and billiard balls at Arax's club had never been matched to anyone in California's database, but after the men were named, Azerkis's prints were found on file in Michigan, where he was from. He was in prison in Pennsylvania for bank robbery at the time. In 2003, Azerkis was actually tried and found guilty of the Era Arax murder. But Silvani escaped justice. He was long dead. In 1982, he took his own life at age 34 by jumping off an 11-story parking garage in San Diego. After a time, he was identified and laid to rest. His crime would not become public knowledge for two decades. Once Azerkis's prints were found in Michigan's database, investigators ran the other set of prints found at the club against Michigan's database on a hunch that the men were both from the same place. And lo and behold, Charles Savani was the man who had been the accomplice in the shooting of Era Arax. Closing the case, detectives disagreed with Mark Arax's theory of the crime and chalked it up to a robbery gone wrong. In any event, Charles Silvani, Mary's brother, died of suicide in the very same year as his sister, but no one knew it. Mary's older brother also faded into the horizon. He initially stayed in Michigan, married, and had a son. This was Mary's nephew, Robert Silvani Jr., who gave his DNA to help identify her. But Mary's brother, Robert Sr., drifted away from his family, leaving when his namesake was only four years old, moved to California to try to make it in the movie biz, and died in obscurity in Oregon. Mary's remaining relatives, including her nephew, Robert Silvani Jr., who recalled hearing about her and other distant relations, were thankful to learn about Mary at the conclusion of the Washoe County Sheriff's Office investigation. Many of them were interested in their family heritage, and Mary's piece of the puzzle had always been missing. Thanks to some terrific reporting from the Detroit Free Press, we have some insight as to the emotions of these family members and how they felt about being asked to contribute their DNA for genealogical tracing. Robert Silvani Jr., Mary's nephew, 
told the newspaper that since his father had left when he was four and lost touch with his wife and son, he never really knew anything about his family. It was not until genealogists trying to identify Mary contacted him that he was able to piece together his family history. Robert said that DNA researchers reached out to him via Facebook in 2018 and told him that they had linked him to a relative of a homicide victim and they needed his DNA. You can imagine what was going through my head, he said. He was very surprised and eagerly contributed his DNA for analysis. I was all for it. I always wanted to take an ancestry thing, he said. A more distant relative of Mary's, her cousin Angel Capriles, also gave her DNA for analysis. Angel's mother was Mary's first cousin because her great-uncle was Mary's father. Angel was found by another cousin on 23andMe after she entered her DNA profile to try to research her own health history of lupus, an autoimmune disease. Angel was contacted by genealogists after working with this other cousin on building their family tree. They told her that her DNA may be linked to a Jane Doe murder victim. Angel talked to the Sacramento Bee, saying she was shocked when she got a call from the DNA Doe Project. They tell me this is a sensitive thing. Your DNA came up as a match in a 30-year-old cold case. Angel told the Detroit Free Press that her mother, Mary's cousin, had mentioned Mary often, and they had always assumed that she had just gone on living her life after falling out of touch. Angel became invested in solving the mystery of her relative's murder, and she actively encouraged her family members to cooperate with the investigators. I really wanted justice, Angel said. I wanted to know. Once genealogists located Angel, they were able to locate Robert Silvani, Jr. The two cousins had never known each other existed, but have now established a relationship. Robert said that his goal, after all was said and done, was to give his Aunt Mary a headstone marking her grave with her real name, something that she had never had. He said, I just want to let her know that she was loved. I never knew my aunt. It would be really nice if I could do something for her. In August of 2018, Washoe County's chief medical examiner, Laura Knight, provided a letter as proof of death for Mary Silvani, and Jane Doe's death certificate has since been amended to reflect her real identity. But again, none of this was made public until the name of her killer was also known. In April of 2018, the WCSO sent Identifiers International the Y-DNA profile from the Sheep's Flat Jane Doe murder. As you know, Y-DNA traces the male lineage and often corresponds with the family name handed down by male descendants through the generations. Cheryl Hester, who was the genealogist working on this, entered the Y-DNA profile into GEDmatch in August of 2018. Two surnames were connected to this Y-DNA, one with significantly more database hits than the other. The top match in the database with 212 centimorgans was a second cousin of the suspect. They shared great-grandparents. Her name was Norma. But among those four sets of great-grandparents of the suspect, they had a total of 35 children. Yes, that's an average of nearly nine children per couple. A genealogist's worst nightmare. What this meant was, with all of those 35 kids having kids, and those kids having kids, they had well over 200 candidates. Norma had 31 sets of second cousins that had to be checked out. They started with the one surname that had come up with the most prominent number of members sharing Y-DNA. The last name was Mize, and that surname was the maiden name of Norma's grandmother. She had five brothers. After tracing and digging and eliminating over a total of 2,000 hours, the genealogist was able to determine which brother, Thomas Ollie Mize, was the grandfather of the suspect. And Thomas had three sons and only one grandson. 
They were confident that this grandson, Thomas W., who was the right age to be Mary's killer in 1982, would turn out to be their suspect. But they were wrong. Thomas W. had a son who was a criminal in prison in Texas, and his DNA was in CODIS. And there was no familial match between the criminal's son's DNA and the real suspect's DNA. They weren't that closely related after all. So law enforcement officers attempted to collect DNA from the grandson, the one they thought was the likely suspect, but he had very recently died. It occurred to the genealogy team that perhaps the grandson-slash-wrong-suspect Thomas W. had a sibling who was unknown, an illegitimate or unknown other son fathered by his father. In genealogist parlance, the outdated term illegitimate, referring to a man having a baby with a woman, not his wife, is called a non-paternity event. So they examined the DNA from the believed suspect's mother, Billie Jean Mormon, and there was no connection with the DNA of the real suspect. This told them that the grandson, Thomas W., the one whom they had believed to be the killer, had an unrecognized half-brother fathered by his father, James Mize, with a woman other than his mother, who was likely the real killer. And this meant that the real suspect probably did not have the prominent family surname that had been gleaned from the Y-DNA, Mize, because he had been raised out of the family. His last name could be anything. So they had to find the suspect's real mother, the quote, other woman. Cheryl Hester explained that initially, they were not able to find relatives in Jedmatch who were close enough matches to the suspect's mother's family to be helpful. But as more and more people began uploading their DNA, in early 2019, two new matches appeared in the database. One of these was a third cousin once removed, and one was a second cousin once removed from the killer. This was enough to facilitate reverse genealogy to figure out the suspect's maternal grandparents, because they now had an idea which family the father came from, which helped them narrow down the geographical area where they believed the mother would have lived. They were aided by a voluntary DNA submission by a 90-year-old relative of the killer. They discovered that in the early 1940s, the suspect's maternal grandparents' family, the Arnold family, was living in Dallas one street over from the suspect's paternal family. And the Arnolds had two daughters. And one of the daughters, Anna Catherine, had given birth to a son in 1946, whom she named James. Anna subsequently married, not James's father, but a man named Dan Curry, and little James took this man's name. Anna's son became James Richard Curry. Yes, Curry. Jane Doe's killer had the same adoptive last name as her mother, Blanche Curry Silvani. Even though it wasn't her killer's birth name, it's still an eerie coincidence. And by the way, James Curry was a multiple murderer who had died after a suicide attempt in 1983, just a few months after he killed Mary. Investigators located the biological children of this James Curry to check their DNA to verify their theory. One of them was a son in prison in California who was in the CODIS database. And lo and behold, when they ran a check, there was a familial match that proved that his father was the killer of Sheep's Flat Jane Doe, now known to be Mary Silvani. If only the genealogists and investigators had known that Mary's Nevada killer had ties to California they could have run a familial DNA search of the state DNA database, and it would have connected the dots between Mary's killer and his son in the California system. But of course, they did not know where the suspect was from. Unfortunately, I could not get any Washoe County detectives to talk to me about this case. The lead detective on the case, Kathleen Bishop, retired after the case was closed. But it appears that Curry's identity was confirmed by cross-checking his DNA against his son in CODIS, 
Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick emailed me saying, quote, Since he was long dead and his crimes predated CODIS, the only way to see if his DNA matched the crime scene DNA was to do a familial search between the crime scene DNA and his son, who was either already in CODIS or from whom a sample was collected for that purpose. I do believe that investigators obtained a voluntary sample from at least one of Curry's children, the one who was not in CODIS. Washoe County Sheriff Balam attributed the identification to both kids, saying, quote, I gotta commend his two children. How tough to have someone knock on your door, knowing your dad has already confessed to three murders, possibly committed a fourth, and learned there's maybe a fifth? Still, it seems that finding out your father's a murderer would not be quite as unsettling as for those relatives who have no idea that their loved one is a killer, as we've seen in so many cases I've already covered. It was probably a small comfort, but at least the Curry kids already knew their dad had a very dark side. So what do we know about James Richard Curry? Curry was born in Bexar County, Texas, on November 16, 1946, to a single mom, Anna Arnold. We now know that he was the product of an out-of-wedlock liaison, which was pretty scandalous back then. We don't know if he ever knew his father, James Mize, who lived nearby. James Mize died in 2001. We also don't know anything about James Curry's early life. In the late 60s, he was arrested in Texas for robbery by assault and served seven years of a 20-year sentence at the correctional facility in Huntsville. When he was released in 1977, he moved to Waukena, California to live near his mom, Anna, who died in 2008. In 1983, the year after he killed Mary Silvani, Curry was living in the Santa Clara area. He was working for a storage unit facility owned by the Store Away Storage Company, managing their large storage lot. He'd been there for about two and a half years. Curry lived on the property at 1700 De La Cruz in the office residence house. In a shocking crime, a couple that managed another store away lot in a nearby town was found brutally murdered on January 2, 1983. This was a husband and wife, 34-year-old Sharon Novozalatz, and her partner Gerald, aged 39. Their storage facility was at 1020 Spring Street, San Jose, a mere two miles from Curry's lot. Sharon was found around 9 a.m. in a culvert along Highway 92 by a deputy sheriff named Rom Groen, who was heading out for patrol. He saw her feet sticking out of the roadside brush. Two hours later, Gerald's body was found by a friend in his storage lot office. They had both been shot to death. Police requests for business associates of the Novozalatzes to come in for interviews included James Curry and his wife Connie. They were joined by the storeaway parent company part owner Alan Rubnitz. Police sat them down on January 4th and informed them that the Novozalatzes had been killed. According to Rubnitz, Curry seemed shocked and his wife started crying. But before long, Curry told them he had killed Sharon and Gerald. He had gone to their home on their storage lot around midnight on Saturday, January 1st. He had shot Gerald and kidnapped Sharon at gunpoint. He drove Sharon to Crystal Spring, sexually assaulted her, shot her, and dumped her body in the culvert. He did this because, he said, they had slighted him socially. The weapon he used was a forty-five caliber handgun. Alan Rubnitz, who knew Curry as one of his storage property managers, told the San Francisco Examiner about Curry that, quote, he was a nice guy. If you were to see him, you probably would have liked him. He was nice appearing and generally friendly and outgoing. He had a little bit of a temper, but nothing that would indicate any kind of maladjusted person at all. Rubinitz said that while Curry and his wife knew the slain couple, they didn't socialize. The men were friendly competitors, operating rival facilities under the same parent company umbrella. 
However, some other employees told police that Curry and Sharon and Gerald had an adversarial relationship, and clearly Curry felt that was the case. But there was more. Curry told investigators that they would find a third body. He was referring to a victim who was entombed in a large box inside a mini storage unit at Curry's storeway facility. He'd been there for over a year. Sure enough, police discovered the decomposed body right where Curry said it would be, stuffed into a plastic-wrapped crate in one of the storage units under Curry's name. It was the remains of 38-year-old Richard Lemon Jr. of Bakersfield, who had been shot at least once in the head with a weapon of indeterminate caliber. Curry and he were friends, and Curry told police he had killed Lemon in February of 1982 because he coveted his friend's motorcycle. After this alarming find, the police were left having to search 1,020 lockers throughout Curry's storage facility, but they found no more bodies. However, they did find six guns, a sawed-off shotgun, a rifle with a scope, a 22 caliber rifle, a 38 caliber revolver, and two other handguns. This guy liked his guns. They also found a bunch of items belonging to other storage unit renters who had reported them stolen. Curry was arrested immediately following his interview with police and charged with the three murders he had confessed to. Within 24 hours, he attempted to take his own life by hanging himself in his cell in the Santa Clara County Jail using a mattress cover as a noose. This wasn't effective in killing him, but did render him unconscious and brain dead after CPR by jail staff. He was able to breathe only on a respirator at San Jose Hospital. On January 7th, doctors said his relatives decided to disconnect his life support. He died around 7.30 p.m. at age 36. None of the articles I could find indicated who the relative was who made the decision to turn off the machines. I can only assume it was his wife, Connie, who is no longer alive. But his death was, of course, a disappointment because investigators looking into the murders of Gerald, Sharon, and Richard Lemon were no longer able to interview Curry. With him hanging himself, we were left with a lot of questions unanswered, Santa Clara Police Sergeant Chuck Seymour said to the San Francisco Examiner in 1983. This was a bit of an understatement, but, of course, Sergeant Seymour had no idea how much. So, left with so many unanswered questions, although Curry was now dead, investigators went full steam ahead looking into the storage lot murders and trying to determine if Curry had any other victims. They determined that Curry had come to California in 1977 and had been an assistant apartment manager in San Jose. He had also worked at Golden Technology. They came to believe, and still do, that he had killed another man, James DeWitt Robinson, a co-worker of his at J&M Locksmith Company, and his neighbor in Wakana. Robinson disappeared in 1978, is police's best guess, although no one is sure because no one ever reported him missing. After police got into Curry's storage unit, they discovered a 38 caliber gun, legal documents, and old checkbooks belonging to Robinson. That gun was found with blood on it, and authorities concluded that Curry had used it to shoot Lemon. James Robinson has never been found. The legal documents found in Curry's possession pertained to a $100,000 settlement Robinson received for a personal injury lawsuit and property he bought and sold in 76 and 77, respectively. It does not seem like a stretch to speculate that Curry killed his friend for his money, but since he hasn't been found, we may never know. So here we are. James Curry has died by his own hands five months after he killed Mary Silvani. He had multiple other shooting victims, both before and after Sheep's Flat Jane Doe. Murdering people by gunshot was his M.O. But investigators never considered him for Mary's murder, almost certainly because she was killed in another state and had no known connection to him, unlike the three Bay Area victims. 
And although Curry confessed to killing Gerald, Sharon, and Lemon, as far as we know, he never told anyone about killing Mary. His motive for murdering the three 1983 victims remains unknown, as does his motive for killing Mary Silvani. It sounds like maybe he was just the murderous type. His old boss mentioned that he had a temper, but he said it didn't amount to anything excessive. Apparently, Curry was familiar with the Lake Tahoe area where Sheep's Flat, Jane Doe, was found, although this was at least four hours away from where he was living at the time. Investigators don't know how his and Mary's paths crossed. They don't even know if they knew each other. As I said, it was believed that Mary also lived in California, and both of her brothers lived there for a time as well, but we just don't have any more details about her life. Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick noted to the Detroit Free Press that there are still a lot of unanswered questions about Mary's circumstances and how she came to be in the company of James Curry on Sheep's Flat that day in 1982. There are some things we will never know, she said, but still, we got to the bottom of who was there, who these two people were, and some kind of thought on what happened. Dr. Margaret Press, who expended countless hours on this case, says that people need family or a friend to look after them. She said, quote, If even cousins don't know you exist, if you don't have family to come looking for you when you come missing, then who do you have? Mary's cousin April Capriles, whose mother Joan Silvani was Mary's cousin, told the Reno Gazette Journal, quote, I just feel so heartbroken because it's like this woman was completely forgotten about on her side of the family. It's tragic. It's just really tragic. Mary Silvani's is the first known case in which both victim and killer were identified by forensic genealogy. After news articles appeared in 2019 heralding the return of her identity to the woman who was known for 37 years as Sheep's Flat Jane Doe, people who knew Mary Silvani back in Michigan spoke out publicly in remembrance of her. I'm going to read an excerpt from an article in the Detroit Free Press by Treza Baldas because it does a terrific job of relaying the kind of person Mary was. Quote, this week, after reading a story about Silvani in the free press, friends from Silvani's high school days in Detroit have come forward to honor her memory. They're sad, angry, and frustrated about her death, and about losing touch with a girl from the neighborhood who clearly needed friends and a support system. Her old friends from the neighborhood want people to know that Silvani was more than a crime victim from a broken family, and that she once laughed, danced, swam, teased her hair, hung out at a burger joint, loved reading, art, and going to the Detroit Institute of Arts. For someone to wind up like that, that's just wrong. She was a nice, nice girl, and she didn't deserve that, said Nancy Cumming of Colorado, a high school friend of Savani's who spoke through tears. When I knew her, she was a sweet, sort of lost soul. She was quiet, very unassuming and unpretentious. I can't imagine someone doing to her what they did. Nancy Cumming, Mary's friend who was mentioned in the article, provided investigators and the media with something they had struggled to obtain, photos of Mary. Up until this point, all the articles say there was only one known photo of her from the group photo in the yearbook. But thanks to Nancy, we now see Mary as her friends saw her. She was one of Nancy's bridesmaids in 1968, a happy teenager cruising in a car, and other photos showing a normal girl's life. Nancy and Mary met at a burger place called Dandy's, went to the same high school, and became fast friends. Mary was taken under Nancy's parents' wing, going on vacation with them, and the Cummings noted that Mary did not like to talk about her own family. It made her uncomfortable. After high school, Mary moved into an apartment with some roommates and waited tables. Nancy said that she seemed sort of directionless. With no parents or family to guide her, she seemed lost. The last time Nancy saw Mary, it was 1972. She was pregnant and living in a home for young, unwed mothers. 
She gave the baby up for adoption, which she told Nancy made her sad, but she felt she had little choice. The adoption was a closed one, and while Mary would see photos of her child, she would not have a relationship with it, and it's possible that her child does not know of her existence. After the baby was born, Nancy never saw Mary again. She moved to California, Nancy moved to Colorado, and they lost touch. Nancy did not know what happened to her until she read about her being identified in 2019. Another high school friend of Mary's, Cindy Cole, who had gone on a trip to D.C. with her to see the sights, said of her friend, quote, She was very adventurous. We didn't worry about stuff back then. You didn't think of bad things happening to you. We were just young and enjoying ourselves. Other friends remember Mary as quiet and kind, someone who loved art and enjoyed normal teen pastimes like going to baseball games and parties. But she never, ever talked about her family. A paperboy who used to deliver to the Silvani's house told the free press that John Silvani always seemed old and worn down and that there was no sign of a mother anywhere. Her friends expressed regret that they had lost touch with Mary. It's common for that to happen as people move on from high school in their hometowns. They grow up and form their own independent identities. But Mary lost her identity in 1982, and it took her nearly four decades to get it back. If you recall, I said earlier that Mary's nephew, Robert Silvani Jr., vowed to provide a personalized headstone for Mary, whose grave at Our Lady of Sorrows Cemetery in Reno was unmarked, save for a nearby sprinkler head flag. Robert could not afford the $1,000 it was going to cost for the marker bearing Mary's name. When he called the cemetery to inquire about obtaining a headstone, he was shocked to discover that the Diocese of Reno had just donated a granite grave marker with the name Mary Edith Silvani etched at the top. Budding rose vines twist up the sides. A message adorns the bottom of the marker. It reads, Our lost angel has been taken to heaven. You have been found and will never be lost again. After 37 years, Mary Silvani's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you were one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you to Dr. Margaret Press for emailing with me about this case, and special thanks to Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick for providing me with lots of information about the forensic genealogy in the Mary Silvani case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNAID Podcast on Instagram, at DNAID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNAID Podcast on Facebook. DNAID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons. And now I'd like to play a trailer for you of a podcast I think you'll really like called Leave the Lights On. Leave the Lights On is a true crime podcast with a paranormal twist. Join creator Eliza and her co-host as they explore terrifying true stories and chilling crimes. Growing up, Eliza had an odd obsession with the darkest desires of humanity and an insatiable curiosity about the afterlife. Now, each week... Eliza brings you tales that will make you want to lock your doors, hide in your room, and of course, leave the lights on. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcast.